Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to page number one. If you're not sure where page number one is, ask your neighbor. We're going to be looking in Genesis, Genesis chapter one. Over these next uh, few weekends, we are going to be walking through Genesis one, two, three, and four. And we're going to be looking at God's design. Now, we're going to be talking about some very interesting topics. We're going to be talking about today, God's design for the world. Uh, next week, God's design for humanity, God's design for marriage, uh, God's design for gender and sexuality. You know, God has a design for those things. And then God's design for parenting. And so we pray that this series will be something that will bless your heart, uh, that will help you uh, as we live in a world that is very confused uh, about a lot of those issues. And so before we get going too deep, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. What a great day you've given us. Father, thank you for Jesus. He is the reason we're gathered. So Father, may all things be done to him and for him, and may Jesus get the glory for all that is said and done today. Father, we say you are an amazing God. So help us to comprehend just how awesome you are. May our view of you be bigger today than it was yesterday. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 1-1, would you stand as we read God's word this morning? The Holy Spirit says to us today through Moses, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. You may be seated. Do you ever look up at night at the stars? You know, with light pollution, it's hard to see the stars, isn't it? You know, you want to go out to the beach, and yet you're surrounded by the lights of the condominiums or the other houses there, unless you just happen to be one of those places where you are away from that. The light pollution seems to take away those things, but yet, as you look up, maybe you've been out somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and you've looked up and you saw that starry, starry night. What, a, what an awesome thing it is to just envelop those, those thoughts of grandeur as you look out into the heavens. Well, recently, astronomers discovered the furthest star yet identified. Uh, in the NASA article, it says that this star is a super hot, super bright giant that formed nearly 13 billion years ago at the dawn of the cosmos. 
the Hubble telescope has detected its light and it is the most distant star ever detected some 12.9 billion light years away from Earth. Now, just to remind you, a light year is the distance, the time it takes for light to travel in one year, and so that's the distance, and that distance that it takes light to travel in one year is six trillion miles. And so they named this star Arendelle, which is uh, a Gaelic term meaning morning star. It is the uh, at least 50 times the mass of our sun and uh, over a million times as bright. Scientists say that this star formed some 9.4 billion years ago, which is more than 4 billion years after the Big Bang. They said that the discovery is yet another piece of the cosmic puzzle that is the evolution of our universe. Now, that's a NASA article. The assumption by many in the scientific community is that the universe is explained by a Big Bang. It must have been one Big Bang. It took place some 14 billion years ago, and the development of the cosmos has been evolving ever since with, without any particular plan, without any particular purpose, without any design, nor a designer. Now, the question for us is, how can something be so large, so vast, so beautiful, so far away, how can it come into being through a big bang? How can it come through accident, happenstance, circumstance? And, and furthermore, how can humans have the capacity to create and design telescopes that can only just scratch the surface of the vast universe without there being a design and without there being a designer. Now, if there is a designer, then shouldn't we want to know who that designer is? And if there is a designer, wouldn't we want to live our lives according to the design? Well, the answer is there is a design because there is a designer, good God Almighty. Christians have always believed in the Big Bang. God spoke it and bang, it happened. <laughs> and we see that in Genesis. The most important verse in the Bible is Genesis 1.1. Francis Schaeffer said that it is the most pregnant sentence ever written. If you don't believe in Genesis 1.1, then you will struggle to believe and you really can't believe in the rest of the Bible. If you can't believe in the God of creation, how can you believe in the God of resurrection? The word Genesis means beginning. It was written by Moses around 1400 B.C. It's the first of five books that God inspired Moses to write, known as the Pentateuch. The book of Genesis was not written as a scientific textbook, but rather it was written as a theological narrative written to reveal the God of creation. God, through special revelation, revealed himself to humanity. Now, for those who want to debate the young earth or the old earth view, and I am, uh, I believe in a young earth creationism, uh, but that's not what this book is as concerned about. The book is more concerned about, the book of Genesis is more concerned about the questions of who made the world and why he made the world rather than when he made it or how long it took him to make it. And so this morning, as we set the stage, each sermon will build upon the other 
as we go through this series. And so this morning, what we're going to be looking at in this whole series is a biblical Christian worldview. And so the basis of a biblical Christian worldview is found in Genesis 1-1. And in it, we see that before creation, there was a creator God. And at creation, there was a creative design. So let's just unpack that. Number one, before creation, there was a creator God. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. God is the subject of the first sentence. God is the one, Elohim, who dominates every part of chapter 1. The eye is caught at every point on the page looking at God. 35 times in chapter one is the name of God mentioned. Now Moses does not begin this creation narrative with a long set of arguments to prove the existence of God. He doesn't come out with the cosmological, the ontological, the moral, or any other arguments for the existence of God. The Bible, never and once does it try to prove the existence of God. The Bible assumes that God simply exists. God has always existed prior to the creation of the universe because God is eternal. God has no beginning, yet the universe has a beginning. Nothing brought God into being. Nothing gave God existence. God is the one who gave us our existence. God has always been and always will be. He alone is uncreated. He alone is eternal. Before there was time, there was God. And so creation is an overflow of his perfection, not a manifestation of his inherent imperfections nor his need. God did not create the world nor humanity out of an intrinsic inherent need for us. God was not lonely or bored or sad. He created it out of an overflow of who he is. He is a creator, creative God. And so in the beginning, God. We could spend the entirety of our lives just trying to understand what that means. But yet, he tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, one God created everything out of nothing. God will say this in, through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 44, verse 24, where God says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. No one helped him. And so what you see is that Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, teaches us everything that exists is grounded in a creator God. That is that everything that is and everything that ever will be finds its origin in God. God is the first cause, the primary mover, and the ultimate creator and sustainer of all things. So therefore, God created everything that is not God. God is different, therefore, than his creation. He is above and sovereign over his creation. And so a biblical worldview teaches this. One God created all things, rules all things, and directs all things to himself. That's important. We assume that. And maybe for some of you, you're like, well, Pastor, I showed up here because I believe that there was a God. Well, great. But you have to be able to articulate this. 
See, the creation narrative in Genesis is unique compared to the other creation accounts. If you, maybe you are one of those people that loves to read other ancient literature and maybe you've read the Babylonia or the Uruget or other types of uh, narratives because every ancient culture has always tried to explain the natural world. In most creation accounts, the, the funny thing or the interesting thing is that the universe in most other accounts the universe comes from multiple gods. In one account, multiple gods are fighting in a cosmic battle, and the universe <clears throat> is a result from it. It kind of reads like a Marvel comic. Others, uh, other accounts say that humanity was merely an accident or an afterthought of the gods or was created by the gods to be slaves to the gods. In one particular creation account, humanity came from the blood of a slain god, and in another creation account, Humanity came uh, from a dead sea monster. Uh, so there you are. If you ever wondered where you came from, <clears throat> a dead sea monster. Even to this day, there are those who talk about different versions of creation. You'll even see it in little small ways. In the Disney movie Moana, uh, Moana meets the demigod Maui, who is the rock. And sometimes he uh, is a stunt double for me in certain things and... Uh, he and I have similar physiques, and um, but in that particular story, uh, Maui thinks that Moana has come to be a fan to see who he was, and so he sings that famous song, "You're Welcome." Uh, and he boasts about his role in creating the world. And he claims to be able to explain every natural phenomenon, including the sun, the ground, the sky, the tides, and even coconuts. But yet, in that movie, if you've watched it, Moana was not impressed. And just as Moana was not impressed, many in our day are equally unimpressed with the biblical creation narrative. Because many dismiss the biblical creation narrative as myth. Just like we would dismiss Maui's version of creation. Because our world now sees that Creation, or the world is not explained through a creation narrative, but is explained only through science. Many people uh, in our world, uh, our postmodern secular world, uh, believe that science is the opposite of believing in the Bible. And so you either believe in the Bible or you believe in science. You cannot believe in both. And so the logic of what is being taught in schools today all around our country is this, is that once upon a time there was a people who had to make up myths to explain how the world around them came into being. But now we have science. And we don't need those stories anymore. Well, the irony is that the first modern scientists invented the scientific method because they believed in a creator God who is totally in charge, incredibly intelligent, and completely free. The irony that those who started the scientific revolution, people like Galileo, were devout, born-again, spirit-filled believers who assumed God existed and then observed nature and the natural order through the lens of creationism. And yet now it has changed. Now those who believe in that, those scientists around the country who believe in creationism and intelligent design are now dubbed as being quacks. How did that happen? 
Well, what you have seen is in, in, the, in recent history, in the past 500 years, there has been a major worldview shift. In the pre-modern age, this is pre-1600, Charles Taylor in his book, Secular Age, said that prior to the 16th century, in a pre-modern age, most presupposed that God existed and that it was impossible to not believe in God. So he says that from ancient history to the 16th century, the question was never, does God exist? But rather, which God is God? And so prior to the 16th century, there was no debate on whether or not there was a creator God. It's just who was the creator God? Well, then fast forward to the modern age, and you have the Enlightenment period, and you have uh, humanistic thinkers like John Locke and Descartes. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And you have now this change of mindset. The mindset is now humanistic and egocentric. Life doesn't begin with God. Now life begins with me, and people start to evaluate everything around me, history, politics, morality. God must now be put in relation to me because I am the ultimate place of authority. And so from the enlightenment, you now have that it is now, now possible to not believe in God. So it went from it was impossible to not believe in God to now it's possible to not believe in God. And then now you have our postmodern age that began in the 18th, 19th, 20th, and to now the 21st century, a postmodern age. And so from the 19th and 20th century, there are the four horsemen of the modern apocalypse, the postmodern revolution. Names like Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, Sigmund Freud. All of these men presupposed a complete liberation from the old order. And so they called for a change that there, no longer would people be bound by the old order structures of theology, history, and morality. And now in the postmodern world, to this day, it is now impossible to believe in God. Do you see how it changed? In just 500 years, it was impossible to not believe in God, to now, to now it's possible to not believe in God, to now, if you believe in God, you're crazy. Culturally, in our day, in the secular world, theism is out of fashion in the larger culture because, as Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead. Al Mohler, writing about this, and I would commend to you a book written by him called The Gathering Storm, in which he said that we have literally gone in just a couple generations where most Christians, whether, where most parents, whether Christian or not, raise their children to believe there is a God. To now, you have parents raising their children to have no real belief in God at all, or they teach them to feel free to make that decision on their own. In other words, just two generations ago, most everybody taught their kids to believe in God. To now, we don't know, you decide. That's what's wrong with this country. That's what's wrong with this world. Because if you take away a creator God, you are creating a bigger existential issue, a bigger problem. Namely, how do you answer the big questions in life? If there is no God, how do you answer the questions of who am I? Where did I come from? Why do I exist? What is true? What is false? And is there a future? If there is no God, how do you explain the origin of all things? 
Even atheists such as Richard Dawkins and others would say that the cosmological, ontological issues that arise from no God are there. Why is there something rather than nothing? I mean, how is it that there can be what is here if there is no one that started? How can everything just come from nothing and nobody? Did you know that there are over 11 million species of life on earth, including humans? Do you think that all of those just happen to show up through mere chance? Some scientists say that you are being too rudimentary in this questioning, that you don't understand the the, uh, complexity of, of evolution, nor do you understand the complexity of physics. Even some physicists will say that that there is this notion of singularity, that the normal laws of physics did not operate at the Big Bang, and yet now what you have is out of the Big Bang come these normal laws of physics. But that's wild speculation. Astronomer Sir Fred Hoyle, who is not a Christian at all, did write this in his paper. Maybe you've heard about it, about the tornado going through a junkyard. He said this. He said, what are the chances of a tornado blowing through a junkyard containing all the parts of a 747, accidentally assembling those parts into a plane, leaving it ready for takeoff? Be one amazing tornado. He said the possibilities are so small as to be negligible, even if a tornado were to blow through enough junkyards to fill the whole universe. As as biochemists discover more and more about the awesome complexity of life, it is apparent that its chances of originating by accident are so minute that they can be completely ruled out. Life cannot have arisen by chance. Again, Sir Fred Hoyle is not a Christian, is not a theist at all, yet he understands there is an ontological, cosmological problem and fallacy with the view of atheism. You gotta have an answer. What is it? But not only this issue of what is the origin of all things, but but furthermore, what is the standard of right and wrong? John Paul Sartre, John Paul Sartre, who who happens to be uh, one of my favorite atheists uh, because he's an honest atheist, (laughs) said that the atheist problem actually starts with good news. Sartre says that once you dispense with God, the good news is you can do what you want, guilt-free and no dread of retribution. But the bad news is you lose all intellectual basis for declaring anything to be inherently right or inherently wrong. See, now for some of you, are like, preacher, this is too early for this stuff. <laughs> you can listen to the thing later, okay? In order to say that something is right or wrong, you have to have a standard by which you compare it to. You know, we have the atrocities of what's happening in Ukraine. You've heard me talk about that for for weeks now and Russia's war in Ukraine. And, And you may, I feel, many feel that this is wrong what's happening there. The murder, the bombings, et cetera. But just because you think it's wrong, how do you know it's wrong? Putin doesn't think what he's doing is wrong. Adolf Hitler didn't think that it was wrong to murder millions of Jews in Europe. I mean, according to the philosophy of of Charles Darwin, why don't we just let the survival of the fittest work itself out? Who says it's wrong? Who says genocide and terrorism is wrong if there's no God? 
No divine lawgiver. See, science can say what, but they can never say why. Science can tell you what is. Science can tell you what you can do. Science can tell you how to do it most efficiently, but science can never tell you whether or not you should do it or not do it. See, you and I look at a glass. Some of you are optimistic in the room. Some of you are pessimistic in the room, right? And you look at a glass and you say, it's half full. Others look at the room and say, it's half empty. All science can say is, it's half. Because science cannot judge whether it's half empty or half full. Science is only, the scientific method is only through the lens of observation. And so, if you take God out of the equation, if you don't believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if you don't believe that before creation there was a creator God, then how do you determine what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful? Richard Dawkins, who is my least favorite atheist, wrote in his book, The God Delusion, he wrote, we call things beautiful because we're programmed to believe that they're useful. When you look at certain scenery, you think it's beautiful because your ancestors believed that there was food out there. And this particular neurological feature that has helped them survive has now come down to you, and that's the reason you see it as beautiful. Do you buy that one? The feeling you get when you go to the beach here in Naples and at sunset and look out there, the breathtaking view that you have with your husband or with your wife, do you think it's just because as you look at the sunset, you think there's a Chick-fil-A sandwich there? It's absurd. How do you explain the love you feel for your spouse? Now, secularists and humanists will talk about this and they'll give different DNA and genetic issues and, and some will say that love is just a conditioned response that our genes have learned to make it conducive for the propagation of our species. You try that as a pickup line. <laughs> hey, baby. My genes have determined that your genes are useful for the propagation of my DNA. <laughs> Let's get married. How romantic. Again, some of you that are maybe from a scientific background, you think, Pastor, where you're coming from is so simplistic and so ignorant. No, the questions here are honest questions. Maybe we can debate for days but there's still going to be questions that science cannot answer. But the Bible does. The Bible teaches that there is a God who has no beginning, who is absolute reality, depends on, is controlled by nothing and no one, who created everything that isn't God out of nothing for his glory. And so, before creation, there was a creator God. Number two. At creation, there was a creative design. Now, we got a lot of stuff to go through here. In verse number two, it says that the earth was without form and was void. Moses here is making a statement. In the beginning, God created. Then he expands on that statement of verse one and then now expands on it and describes how God created the heavens and the earth. Some will say that there's a gap in here. Some will say this is how we get dinosaurs. Some will say this is how this happens and that happens. That's not what we're here to talk about today. 
Here's what we are gonna see, is that God brings form out of formlessness, cosmos out of chaos, vitality out of void. God stood at the blank canvas of the universe and filled it in with the breath of his mouth and his Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, in verses three through 27, you will see here that there are at least three acts of creation, three times in these verses. The the Bible says that God created. Here in verse one, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 27, God creates. Verse 21, God creates. In verse one, he creates the universe. Verse uh, Verse 21, he creates the sea creatures, the bugs, the furry woodland creatures, the livestock, Verse 27, he creates man in his image, distinct and separate from all creation to mirror his glory. And so as we go through verses three through 19, we see his first act of creation, Genesis 1.1. Going forward, God creates billions of stars, the moon, the planets, galaxies, millions upon millions of light years apart. God created space and matter, light, energy, time, the separation of day and night, rotation, magnetic fields, day and night cycles. He creates vegetation. He creates an ecosystem for life, rainforests, glaciers, deserts. He does all of that in four days, action-packed four days. He creates on this planet and puts the planet in such a way that it's a small planet in a small solar system in a small galaxy that this planet is just certain degrees away from the sun, tilted. None of that's an accident. You see in day five, verses 20 through 25, is that God creates the microscopic organisms in the ocean that oxygenate the water and the earth. Did you know that 80% of the oxygen on planet Earth comes from plankton? The fish and the sea creatures eat these organisms that are then eaten by other large sea creatures. God then creates the birds who feed off the sea creatures, feed off the bugs, and pollinate the Earth. All of this was to create an environment of life. Then day six, verses 26 and 27, he creates animals who feed off the birds, feed off the bugs, feed off the vegetation and the fish, all that pollinate and perpetuate ecosystems so that the crown of his creation is human life made in his image. It seems as you read verses one all the way to verse 27 that it was all building up to that moment where God creates humanity in his image. And what you see, as we'll look more next week, is the creation was not an accident, but, but it was on purpose. Because God created everything with a design, and therefore design points to a designer. All that God created had was with a purpose, and even in his creation of humanity, it was with purpose. You have a purpose. You're not just floating aimlessly. We have been created, and we have been created with a purpose in mind, and the purpose of humanity and the purpose of creation is that humanity would glorify God and enjoy him forever. All of his creation is made with a design, and that design is stamped with something. In each one of these days, like a crescendo, God's word said it was good, 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 it was good. Why was it good? Because the one who made it is infinitely good. 
And so the Bible says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then Paul in doxology in Romans chapter 11, verse 26 says that for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Yes, God created humanity. With his in, in his image, to reflect his glory, to represent him, to multiply and flourish. And it seems that the whole creation narrative leads to the climax of day six in which God creates man. But I want to get you in right perspective. That the universe and the earth was not created for you. God did create humanity, but humanity was not the point of creation. We are the created. We are not the creator. We are not the measure or the end of all things. Life is not about us. Our sole existence is not so that God can bring goodness to us. Our sole existence is that we bring glory to him. And in our desire of pursuing his glory, it always leads to our good. See, your pursuit of joy and pleasure is wrapped up in God himself. And that's why Augustine said that the human heart is restless. We are restless until we find our rest in thee. God has designed our lives in such a way that when we follow his instructions, when we follow his will, when we pursue his glory, we are fulfilling our purpose, and from that we get joy. See, there's nothing greater than doing what you're created to do. When we go against God's design, when we rage against our maker, when we do what we wanna do rather than what God has called us to do, when we don't live up to the purpose that God has called us to live up to, bad things happen. We start to malfunction, we start to break down. There is a way that seems right to man and the end thereof is death. But when we follow God's design, we begin to live life in a way that God has created us to live and that's why the psalmist said in Psalm 1611 that you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, there is a difference between merely existing and truly living. A lot of people are just merely existing. They're breathing breath, eating food, going to work, watching TV, and living a life of quiet desperation. True living is following God's path for your life. God tells us this is best. This is best for your life now. This is best for your life forever. And so listen, as we go through this series, if you want to know what it means to be a man or a woman, God says, here's the path of life. If you want to know what God has to say about sex, about money, about health, about children, about the future, God says, here is the path of life. Follow the path, and in so, you find joy. But here's what you have to understand. 
God's path may not always be easy. It may contradict you because you are a broken person. And I dare say that over these next few weeks as we get into God's words, you may get upset over what the Bible teaches. I guarantee you that our world and our culture will get upset about what will be taught over these next few weeks. But here's the question. What kind of God would God be if he only said things that you agreed with and he only said things that you liked? He would not be God at all. Because God will often contradict you. And if God never, if the God that you worship and the God of the Bible that you read never contradicts you and does everything you like, then that means you're God. God doesn't always do what you like. God doesn't do what always I like. You know, no loving parent always says yes to their children because if a loving parent, if a parent said yes to their children all the time, they would be creating little sociopaths. But we have a God who is our creator and he's our designer. And we must know that he knows what's best for our lives. And even if it hurts and even if it doesn't make sense, we should always submit to what God wants. Because we are made by God. We are made for God. And the best and highest pleasure in life is to pursue God with all of our hearts. That's why you're here today. You know the reason why you came this morning? Because you want God. And we'll never, we'll never grow as believers. We'll never grow as a church until our view of God grows. Whatever thoughts that you have of God right now are not high enough, A.W. Tozer says. Every day we need a higher view of God. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 8 said that when I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? When you have a higher view of God, you have a real view of yourself. And sadly, we've put ourselves in the place of God and God we have brought down low. But yet, we have a God who created everything. Who is it that would, why would a God who created everything ever love me? Louis Armstrong is one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time. In 1967, Armstrong released a single that was entitled, What a Wonderful World. Won't you listen to it? I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. You know, instead of thinking what a wonderful world, we should marvel at what a wonderful God. But as great as creation is, even greater is your salvation. The old Puritan Thomas Watson said this, great was the work of creation, but greater was the work of redemption. Great wisdom was seen in the making of us, 
but more miraculous wisdom in the saving of us. Great power was seen in bringing us out of nothing, but greater power in helping us when we were worse than nothing. In creation, God gave us ourselves. In the redemption, he gave us himself. What an awesome God. And today, if you do not know him, he is here. And he wants a relationship with you. And today, you can give your life to him. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're broken and empty inside because you're pursuing anything and everything other than him. He's here today. Others in the room, you believe in him, but yet you have made the problems and obstacles of your life bigger than God. And because you have made things bigger than God in your life, you're living in fear. Today, you have a God who created everything out of nothing and saved you from hell. If you have a God that can save you and create you, you have a God you can trust to, can, to help you with anything you face. Trust him today. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the, the truths that you are our God, that you created us, that thou hast made us for thine self. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. So Lord, today, for those who need you as Savior, would they today trust you? Would they give their lives to you? And for those who have you as their Savior, Father, would they be here today and trust you as Lord, that you are bigger and greater than anything they're facing? What a wonderful God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.